From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Two Republican senators introduced a bill that would require the director of the CDC to be a Senate-confirmed position. The position of CDC director has been a subject of debate during the coronavirus pandemic. It has never been subject to Senate confirmation during the center's 75-year history. Breaking Defense reports that the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia have formed a new joint security agreement that includes giving nuclear-powered submarine technology to Australia. It's the first time the U.S. has shared that technology with the three nations. Some see the agreement as potentially altering the future strategic balance in the Pacific. An amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act of 2022 would allow an executive agent at U.S. Cyber Command to bypass the Office of Personnel Management in appointing people to cybersecurity positions for periods no greater than 180 days. The change is aimed at helping the agency respond to cybersecurity incidents. The American Federation of Government Employees opposes the amendment, arguing it weakens civilian control at the Defense Department by removing OPM from the hiring process. All federal employees have until November 22 to get fully vaccinated for COVID-19 without the option for just testing. The White House says that deadline applies to both agencies and federal contractors. Robert Shea is National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton. He's former Associate Director at the Office of Management and Budget. Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland and Knight. Welcome to you both. Eric, let me start with you. What does this mandate mean for federal contractors? It really means that contractors kind of have to get systems in place, compliance systems in place to be able to track employees and, and understand what their vaccination status is and do it in a way that's legal because there's a lot of kind of legal barriers that w when you're collecting health information. Um, it's, it's interesting because we have a, a situation where there's a, a task force that's coming out on September 24th with the requirements including vaccination and the executive order that came out about this issue um, didn't specifically mention vaccination, but the White House website has already been updated to say vaccinations will be required for contractors. Is this only contractors that are on that are going to be on site at federal properties? It will also be contractors who are who have employees working on their own sites. And then the question is, with COVID-19, is your home also a work site if, if the company is mandating folks work at home? So that's something that hopefully will be ironed out by September 24th. There's, the president has also said that companies over 100 employees have to get their employees vaccinated. So I guess any federal contractor over 100 employees would have to get their, would be required, right, to get their employees vaccinated. Probably. There'll be some companies that, that get the mandate from two angles, uh, from this executive order and then this emergency temporary standard that OSHA is probably going to release uh, imminently requiring vaccinations. So, Robert, let me ask you about how this vaccine mandate would need to be written into contracts then for the federal contractors that are working with the government. That's right. How the, does that work? Eric alluded to the, uh, the, the way the executive order was written. It called on the task force to issue guidance that the director of OMB needs to approve. And then the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the FAR Council, needs to craft the terms and conditions that will go actually into contracts that then require the contractors to take action. So there's a lot of 
uh, bureaucratic wrangling that'll have to take place before you actually see these things reflected in contracts. My advice to contractors will be to get ahead of this, get their workforces uh, vaccinated, um, because it looks like those requirements will be here sooner rather than later. But I wonder if it's sooner rather than later, because that seems like a lot of work, to be honest, and it's not like the government works that fast. That's right. They don't generally work fast, but I think the president has made it clear that he wants this mandate imposed in whatever facet of the economy uh, he can influence. And federal workers, federal contractors are two uh, uh, workforces over which he does have significant influence. Do you think agency leaders are equipped enough and have enough information to get everything they need to put in place to meet the deadline? Um, I think they have a lot of processes in place to test their employees and visitors for COVID. And they have um, done yeoman's work getting their workforces vaccinated. Uh, the task force guidance that came out this week adds further clarity on what's required under the president's recent executive order. Um, but there's still a lot of discretion. All federal employees will have to be vaccinated um, unless there's an exception allowed by law. And the courts have generally been the ones to determine what's actually a reasonable exception that you can offer uh, employees. You know, since you mentioned it, I do want to talk about the exceptions because I feel like that's going to be a legal landmine. You know, somebody saying, well, I, I have a religious issue with the vaccine, so therefore I, I don't have to get it. And I think Eric will uh, confirm for me that the courts are the ones to determine what constitutes reasonableness. A, a vaccination requirement has generally been upheld but the wiggle room has been in just what kinds of exceptions. Is there a health exception? Is there a religious exception? And the courts really do weigh um, the, the, the health benefits of a vaccine versus what constitutes a genuine reason not to get one. Eric, your thoughts on the, the exemption? Yeah, I, I think Robert's right. Uh, this is really gonna play out in the court system. And courts have generally, from what I've seen, and there haven't been a lot of cases on this, but generally kind of look at those exceptions pretty narrowly. Um, so you really have to put up a good show of proof that you're, you're entitled to that exception. And it's gonna be even more difficult because the government's gonna move pretty fast. One, you know, this whole regulatory process that Robert was talking about takes a long time generally. But there's, there is one, um, one, one thing in their arsenal that the government has that they ordinarily don't use but can use it here and that's called a class deviation. And essentially what can happen is the government issues a class deviation, an agency issues it, and all of a sudden it's a kind of a regulatory requirement until the regulations come out. So um, the executive order alluded to the fact that, that President Biden wants class deviations to be used. So it'll be interested, interesting to see if DOD and other agencies use class deviations to kind of get it in quicker. That makes the court process even more complicated. Well, can't wait to see all that happen. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna take a, a quick pause here, but we're gonna come back and continue our conversation. Coming next, we'll continue our conversation about the implementation of the federal vaccine mandate. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
A new White House mandate requires all federal employees and most government contractors to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The Safer Federal Workforce Task Force says additional guidance is coming soon. Robert Shea and Eric Crucius are here with me. Uh, gentlemen, we were talking before about um, the implementation. And Robert, I want to ask you how this mandate is different, if at all, for agencies and for contractors. Well, right now, uh, federal agencies, contractors, and contractors that work on site at federal agencies um, uh, are different in that uh, there's no requirement um, that federal contractors get vaccinated, at least until the executive order that was recently issued. And so the real impact was for contractors that were visiting federal agencies. They had to either show they were vaccinated or agree to be tested. Now, all those populations are going to be required to be vaccinated, though the, uh, the difference will be in the timeline. Um, the, task, the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force has already issued guidelines impacting federal employees. Those impacting contractors are yet to come. And as we discussed, there'll be regulatory actions that have to take place before those requirements get embedded in contracts. Now, one of the wrinkles is that the guidance says agencies continue testing at their discretion. So it'll be interesting to see which agencies require, in addition to vaccinations for their employees and contractors, testing of those employees and contractors as well. And you, certainly places where they're facing the public, that would also be, or, or healthcare agencies like the Veterans Administration, NIH. I think that's right. The, those that have high public um, uh, impact, contact with the public, those that are actually delivering healthcare, those are populations that I think you'll see belt and suspenders like testing on top of vaccination requirements. Eric, we talked a little bit about lawsuits. There's lawsuits popping up all over the country about the mask mandates and vaccine mandates. Will that impact this, the, our conversation here about the federal workers, the federal contractors? I mean, it could. It only takes one federal judge to issue a mandate that could impact the entirety of the country, although historically these, these lawsuits have been unsuccessful. I mean, I think the difficulty that contractors have with this is they'll possibly be facing lawsuits themselves. And then there are these different standards that you could see across different agencies, where some may have a testing mandate, some may have a more stringent vaccine mandate, and they have this population of employees where they're all gonna have different requirements for these employees. So not only is it difficult for contractors to track, but the employee population may get a little bit upset that you know some employees have a vaccine requirement and some don't, whether they're in favor of vaccines or not. Maybe they'll, they'll be mad that they're cohorts don't have a vaccine mandate because they don't want to get the vaccine and vice versa. So it'd be interesting to see um, how all that nets out and how that plays into the potential lawsuits if, if employees are not being treated kind of equally. So on the contractor side, what's really still up in the air? What's still yet to be determined um, for, for them on this mandate? Part of it is, is the date. Um, so there, there technically has not been a vaccine mandate announced for contractor employees, but it's, it's in the cards. Everyone knows it's happening. The White House has updated their website already to say that it's happening. But we don't know the date that that mandate's going to take effect for, for contractors. We should know September 24th when the official task force guidance is released, um, what that date is. And then from there, contractors have to kind of get all their employees together and figure out a solution. Because if, they, if there is a population of employees who are not willing to abide by that mandate, they have to find replacements for them on their contracts. I wonder, 
are we expecting um, an exodus of employees who are saying, you know what, I'm not getting vaccinated, and if that means I lose my job, I'll go work somewhere else, or I'll retire, whatever. Right. I mean, it's possible, uh, especially the retirement angle. I think what the Biden administration is trying to do is to not give them a place to go to if they want to go somewhere else. So with this, with this requirement where if you have 100 more employees, you're going to have some kind of mandate. Uh, we're waiting for that uh, guidance to come out. But, you know, if, if, if every, you know, if, if the person's skill is doing X and all jobs doing X require a vaccine, perhaps maybe they, they will stay and, and get the vaccine. So it'll be interesting to see. Robert, what are you looking for from the task force? What extra guidance for agencies are, are you most interested in, in finding out? I think the biggest uh, uh, mystery is on exceptions. Where will we allow for exceptions to the vaccine mandate? Um, and right now there are no clear instructions for agencies on that question. Um, I, I will emphasize um, uh, that, you know, the, the sooner uh, the bulk of the population, including these workforces, are vaccinated, the sooner the vaccine mandate becomes irrelevant. Um, that's really the goal of all this, to, to get the pandemic behind us, um, and the vaccinations are the best way to do that. Eric, what about product contractors? Is there anything particularly vague about the mandate when it comes to them? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because there, there is some vagueness associated with it. You know, within the executive order, there's a list of contracts that are implicated by the executive order and there are a list of contracts, types of contracts that would be excluded. Specifically excluded are subcontracts for products. But if you look at the list of contracts that are included, there's nothing there that indicates that products, prime contracts are included. So you have these you know, large contractors that sell products to the federal government and they're not on either list. Uh, and it sounds like there's a, maybe a little bit of, of tug of war behind the scenes as they try to figure that one out. Um, but it'd be, you know, that's a large portion of the uh, employees who do work for the, you know, at, as contractors for the federal government. And you know, this also includes, of course, these employees who are working in connection with the contract, um, and they they help support the contract. And in the product space, though, that's a lot of people. So um, I'd be interested to see if um, these product prime contracts are added to that goal list or if they're if it's more made more clear that subcontracts and prime contracts for products are excluded well clearly gentlemen more is going to come out uh, before this whole uh, pandemic is over so i want to thank you so much we'll continue to watch this issue thanks for having us thank you up next 64 million dollars in humanitarian aid going to afghanistan straight ahead on government matters how the u.s can support afghan civilians while still countering terrorist threats in the area we archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The U.S. will send $64 million in aid to support humanitarian efforts in Afghanistan. At the same time, the Defense Department will shift its approach to countering terrorist threats in the area. Lisa Curtis is a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. She is director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at CNAS. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. I want to start with the humanitarian assistance because the U.S. has said we want to help the Afghan people. We want to help the women and the girls. How do you do that without supporting the Taliban regime? Well, I think it is important for the U.S. to 
provide humanitarian assistance. Uh, Afghans have relied on international aid for the last 20 years. In fact, 70% of the Afghan budget was from international assistance. So certainly we should be getting assistance into those Afghans for their basic needs, food, shelter, medicine. However, that aid is different than the nine billion in frozen assets that the U.S. holds uh, of, of the Afghans. And that, I think, should be conditioned on the Taliban demonstrating they're going to fight terrorism, they're going to respect women's rights. And unfortunately, the signs are not good on that. The interim government that was just named includes Sirajuddin Haqqani, uh, a well-known terrorist leader. In fact, he heads up a State Department-designated foreign terrorist organization, and he has American blood on his hands. So that is a different issue. But yes, we should be getting humanitarian assistance in for the Afghans' basic needs. Well, how do you do that? Because it's not like the Taliban are gonna be friendly to, you know, I guess Americans helping, the, I, I don't know, maybe they are. But isn't there a security issue? What, what's the logistics of getting that aid to the right people and it not being stolen by, by bad actors? Well, look, there are dozens of international non-governmental organizations that have been working in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. And so to the extent that we can funnel the aid directly to these NGOs, um, I think you know, we have a better chance of it getting to where it needs to go. But look, the Taliban, they understand that uh, people are suffering. They understand that they require this international assistance. So I think they will facilitate it getting uh, to the people uh, that it needs to get to. So I, I do think it is possible to, to do that and uh, we can work through those organizations that are there that are established and know what they're doing. What, what about security? Who, who handles that? Well, these NGOs have chosen to stay in Afghanistan. They, uh, in some cases, have already been working with the Taliban under Taliban-controlled areas. So they understand how to work with the Taliban, and they feel secure enough to stay there, even though the Taliban has taken over the government. So I think it is possible that uh, the Taliban will maintain security for these international NGOs to keep operating. I think the main concern that we have are is the terrorist problem, right? And you know, is the Taliban going to facilitate the reemergence of terrorist groups, or are they going to make sure? that terrorists are not able to set up shop again in the country. And we just don't know the answer to that yet. How much control do they have, though? I mean, it's not like they can control ISIS. ISIS did the attack at the, at the airport. Well, I think that's right. They, they don't control the entire country. They're also coming back to governing after being out of government 20 years. Things have changed a great deal in Afghanistan. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's a valid question. Are they really going to be able to control all these terrorist groups uh, that are operating? ISIS-K, obvi the obvious one, but also Al-Qaeda continues to operate and they continue to um, have alliances with Al-Qaeda. So I think these are all very valid questions, but look, uh, top of our mind has to be the Afghan people and to end their suffering. And to do this, we're, we're going to have to provide some assistance. We're going to have to allow 
those organizations to do their job um, in meeting the basic needs of the Afghans. And Lisa, who takes the lead from the U.S. government perspective on that aid, the humanitarian aid? Is it USAID? Um, does the State Department work through the U.N.? How does that work? Well, USAID will uh, direct the assistance to the different organizations. So yes, they, they take the lead in providing this assistance. But we also uh, provide money through the UN uh, organization, so that happens as well. But uh, USAID would be the primary government agency that is overseeing where the aid is directed, um, how it's being used. For example, uh, USAID had to seek a license uh, from the Treasury Department in order to provide funding for organizations that were operating in Taliban-held areas. Um, before that, we weren't even allowed to provide aid in certain areas of the country. So all that's had to change. New authorities have been given to be able to do this. And, and I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, where we have to be careful is in not rushing to grant the Taliban official diplomatic recognition or to grant them broad economic assistance. Um, that's where we have to be careful. All right. Well, Lisa, plenty to say about this subject, but thanks so much for joining us and, and coming in. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us and get the latest updates and behind-the-scenes look at our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.